Around 20 million students are currently enrolled in colleges and universities across the United States, for scale that's more than double the population of New York City. And obviously, all of those students need somewhere to live while they attend school. And investors, both public and private, have started to realize this. Over the last couple of decades, as colleges and enrollment numbers have grown and admission rates have dropped, investment firms and developers have started building more and more apartments around college campuses that are intentionally designed for the typical college student, and it's given students options. But when did the asset class become so institutionalized, and why? Welcome to Deconstruct. I'm your host, Isabella Farr, and today we're talking about student housing. Yeah, it was very much a homogenous product everywhere. It was people were dropping in the same product type into every market. It was very little diversity in terms of the unit mix. You were kind of getting the same thing, one size fits all. Uh, and people were, were really targeting schools where they could very quickly you know, build scale units, um, less concerned about barriers, less concerned about the academic profile of the school. It was really capitalizing on you know, the advent of this new asset class and really getting product out at scale um, as quickly as they could. That's Justin Gronley. He oversees student housing for Harrison Street, an investment firm focused on alternative asset classes. I asked Justin what student housing looked like back in 2005 when he first started working with the sector. You know, in terms of what those assets looked like, it was very, very uh, heavily garden product type. So think three, three stories, think four to six to eight units per story and, and anywhere from, you know, 400 to a thousand plus beds, uh, you know, small clubhouse, small pool, you know, just kind of check the box amenities and almost universally it was four bedroom units and a lot of shared bathrooms. So four twos kind of ruled the day. And that was a lot of what was built in the 90s, early 2000s uh, by cap companies like Capstone, JPI, Allen O'Hara, uh, which kind of are, are precursors to a lot of the companies that are still in student housing today. In 2011, the student housing market was primarily um, driven by private investors. I asked Jacqueline Fitz, a broker at CBRE who co-leads the firm's national student housing team, when she started to see more big public firms start to invest in the sector. We really didn't see the institutions coming into student until I would say 2013, 2014, and it became more recognized as an institutional asset class and we saw more of the pension funds and even individual private equity funds raised around student housing investment. Jacqueline, what prompted this institutionalization? What are some of the reasons behind it? There are a couple of different things. We, we really saw the, um, the sophistication of the developments really um, come a long way from a student housing perspective. So you saw a lot more institutional type assets being built. Um, 2014, 2015 were the largest years for development within our sector. The largest number of beds were delivered. Um, so they were delivering this more institutional asset, which became more attractive to the institutions. And then there was also just the attraction of the yield. So the yield differential between student housing and multifamily was 75 to 100 bits at that point. So there was a big yield spread. So people came into the sector 
um, being attracted to that yield differential compared to multifamily. And also the fact that um, our asset class is considered to be recession resilient. I asked Justin the same question. The two kind of crucial things that, that really kicked this off, at least in a national way, you know, more than just someone in a college town that's a landlord and owns uh, a few apartment buildings, w- was two things. Uh, the first being by the bed leasing. So the ability to lease just a bedroom, you know, you're responsible for your obligation and not that of your friends who you may be sharing an apartment with and the parental guarantee. Uh, so having the idea of having a parent backstopping the obligation of the student who's renting the unit or renting the bedroom. Uh, so in, in that way, you're, re- you're taking someone who may be perceived as a, a, a risky, a little riskier from a credit standpoint and buttressing it with, you know, the parents who are kind of footing the bill at the end of the day, if, if anything were to go awry. I think the the three initial early REITs, I, I think, did a good job of institutionalizing the space from a, in the terms of operations and reporting and showing to Wall Street that this, this product type asset class can be institutionally owned and operated. Uh, and there wasn't as much risk, you know, kind of dispelling the animal house myth that, that kind of <laughs> permeates the sector, uh, or at least did back then. You know, after that, I, I really think it was the GFC in 07, 08, where we saw not only our performance continue, but, but arguably performance of the student sector, you know, do better and, and outperform some other asset classes because we saw a lot of folks go back to school um, during that period, or at least go back to school after that period once they realized that people who had, you know, a four-year degree were, were less impacted by that recession. This episode was actually great timing. Welcome back, everyone. Blackstone is about to become landlord to thousands of college students across the country. Last week, Blackstone announced it was buying American Campus Communities, one of the largest student housing REITs in the country, for about $13 billion dollars. ACC owns 166 student housing properties across 71 college markets, including buildings at Arizona State University, which enrolled about 104,000 students last year. ACC declined to be interviewed for this episode. Blackstone's acquisition confirms this trend of institutionalization. Big private equity firms are now comfortable owning student housing. So we heard from Justin what student housing developments used to look like. But what do they look like now? CORE's approach from day one has always been to bring a full mix of uh, unit product. Chad Matizzi is the chief operating officer of CORE Spaces, which develops, buys, and manages student housing across the U.S. And and what that means is uh, any one of our developments will have units ranging from micro units to studios to one bedrooms, two bedrooms, three bedrooms, four bedrooms, five bedrooms. And uh, our, the, the approach behind that is to you know, really offer a diversified uh, price point uh, you know, for that product to, to appeal to the broadest sense of the market. And also, uh, you know, some ways provide us with some, uh, I guess, defense in a way as more product comes in and out of a market, you know, the, the, the quantity of four bedrooms could fluctuate wildly, and we never want to be overweight in any one of those uh, unit types. Chad also told me how developers, including CORE, have started to build student housing properties closer to campus. Why is that? Well... Uh, I mean, it was really just fundamental 
real estate. Uh, you know, good real estate is all about location, location, location. Uh, and when, when you started to think about, you know, where were the best places for students to live, uh, you know, at these campuses, it was, uh, you know, at those main and main locations. Um, you know, we, we seek uh, locations that, you know, are not only adjacent to education, but also adjacent to nightlife and shopping. Um, and we're really trying to put our tenants kind of at that epicenter uh, and that walkable location. There are also some U.S. markets that are more attractive to investors. The word of the day, if you will, but it's been the word of the last few years, um, is Power 5. So we really have seen the institutions and the developers focus their attention on Power 5 investments that are located in the five conferences in football. That The Power 5 conferences are the ACC, SEC, Big Ten, Pac-12, and Big 12. That covers a lot of schools. Everywhere from Alabama to Georgia Tech to Clemson to Stanford to Arizona State. Jacqueline said investors like these schools not necessarily because enrollment numbers are rising, but because admission rates keep going down. There's more demand for these schools, meaning student housing investors will always have people filling up their properties. The University of Washington became the nation's first large college to close its classroom, saying it will cancel in-person classes and have students take classes and exams remotely instead. Stanford and, and Harvard, they're canceling classes or they're going to online learning, not just for a couple of weeks, but, but for the rest of the year. Uh, 2019, it was status quo. Everything was, was going great. There was a lot of development infill. Um, we were seeing consolidation among developers where the, the largest developers were getting more and more of the deal flow. Lenders understood this space. We were getting similar financing terms as, as folks were getting in multifamily. Uh, so it was a, a very you know, predictable, investable environment. Uh, the, the pandemic came along and obviously threw all of that on its head. I asked Justin how the sector was affected by the pandemic. And you, you, there, were, there were certainly some long days and nights in, in March and April of 2020 where me and the team thought long and hard about what what our space was going to look like. What were the 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 impacts of this pandemic going to be? And and we were right on a lot of it, wildly off on some of it. Um, but it was interesting to see it play out. And I think, for reasons we can talk about, we're, we're as an industry a lot better for it than we might have been going in. What were you wrong about, and what were you right about? The the fear I had, just the the you know, the remote but but very concerning fear was that. You know, remote learning would take hold in a major way and really obviate the need for a ton of housing in these college towns. That was the concern that uh, that an Ivy League school would say, you know what, we can have our on-campus kids and then we can say we'll have 50,000 students that are that are online and they may come to town, you know, once a once a semester or something. And in polling students throughout the pandemic and it was kind of amazing just just how regardless of the school type, regardless of the financial wherewithal of the student, how they all really disliked online learning uh, for just a myriad of reasons. They, they, they didn't like it. So I was really relieved once that concern was allayed. And, and we knew that, that kids wanted to get back and even more you, you know, encouraged when we actually saw it happen uh, in enrollments around the country uh, last year and, and in particular this year. So that was encouraging. And what we were right on you know, go back to the parental guarantee. You know, we we were confident that 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 would hold, and and particularly real estate's a relative game, and relative to conventional multifamily, 
we thought that the wherewithal of students and their parents uh, was likely as good or better than the, the wherewithal of someone in their young 20s, early 30s that, that may, you know, if there is a bad recession, they, they may find themselves struggling as well. So, so to us, we, we thought we were in a pretty good position uh, once you dug a little deeper and understood the structure. Jacqueline told me that across the U.S., occupancy rates didn't actually fall that drastically during the pandemic, even though so many colleges sent their on-campus students home and transitioned to remote learning. Well, overall occupancy fell about 4%, uh, around 4% for the 2021 academic year. Um, but that was that was a little bit of a mixed bag. Some of that was because international students didn't leave their apartments and college students weren't studying abroad. But there was also a divide across the country, generally at schools in more conservative, Republican-led states that had less COVID-related restrictions, student housing developments were more than 95% leased at the end of 2020. Developments at schools like UC Irvine, San Diego State, and Cal State in California, which shut down for longer periods of time, were below 80% leased on average during the same time period, according to a CBRE report. The pandemic, it didn't really have an impact on us. In some ways, it actually had a positive impact on us. What we found was, you know, as students, you know, quickly returned to campus, uh, even if they weren't returning to, you know, live in-person classes, but, you know, they still wanted to get back to campus, right? They, They didn't want to be living in their parents' bedrooms anymore. We maintained 95% occupancy, you know, all the way through the pandemic. Uh, we even seen saw rent growth uh, of roughly 2%. It, in our opinion, really solidified, you know, what student housing is uh, as a sector in real estate. That resiliency throughout the pandemic makes Blackstone's decision to acquire American campus communities make sense. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have an idea you'd like to share, feel free to reach us at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're looking at the office market in Chicago. Tune in then.